0: Good morning, church. It is a joy to see you all this morning. Um, as Pastor Josh mentioned, my name is Austin. I'm one of the ministers here at Flourishing Grace Church, and I'm stoked that y'all are here. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed this when you walked in, um, but Thanksgiving's over. It's time to start thinking about Christmas. Uh, we have some, some decorations and stuff like that, and uh, I know uh, in the life of the church, as we've talked about already, we call this season Advent, right? Um, And today is actually the first Sunday of Advent. And I know that there are some folks in here uh, who go, man, I thought this season uh, that we start thinking about Advent was called, or start thinking about Christmas, is called uh, September, right? That's that's what it is for my wife. Like, September comes around, and we're like, you know, Christmas carols and all that. But, and that might be true for some of y'all. But in the life of the church, it's now. It's the fourth Sunday from Christmas that Advent begins, and really, Advent isn't about thinking about Christmas. That's not the, the point of Advent. Advent is about anticipation. It's about waiting with expectancy for the coming of our king, right? And so this Advent season, we're going to do that by looking at different minor prophets. You know, so typically at Flourishing Grace, we go through a whole book of the Bible and we kind of, uh, kind of take it in chunks of scripture at a time. We try to study the whole thing. This season for Advent, we're going to kind of do a flyover of four different books of the Bible. And so we're going to pivot from the series in Mark, and we're going to focus on our coming king and the minor prophets. And just so you know, uh, the minor prophets, I was just talking to Josh Gardner about this in between gathering. I don't think there's ever a time that I've read a minor prophet that I wasn't just like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. You know, forgive me. Like the minor prophets are tough, but I think it's a good kind of a tough. And I think it's a kind of a tough that will help prepare our hearts for this season of Advent. Um, Advent actually means coming. It comes from the Latin word, Adventus. It means coming. And and it's fascinating because the early church, the historic church, they actually started their year with the season of Advent. So we start our year on New Year's. The historic church, in their mind, they're going, man, I want to live this life radically oriented around the life of Christ and and the gospel. We actually start our year with the anticipation of the king. And so during this season, uh, during Advent, what we do is we look back at the work that Jesus did for us, but more importantly, we want to focus forward, right? We want to anticipate the work that joy, Jesus is going to do when he comes back in his second advent. And, and for those of us who are on this side of the resurrection, right, yeah. for, we are kind of forever in this season of advent. We are perpetually in a place of longing, of waiting, of anticipating Jesus' second coming. And the truth is that, that while we're waiting, we don't always wait well, right? There are times when we are waiting where we get distracted, where we'll start to drift. We can drift in our, in our worship. We can drift in our discipleship. And we can drift so far that our lives stop looking like the people who are waiting for their king. Our drift can become so drastic that it can cause us to miss out on the joy of a relationship with Jesus as we are awaiting his second coming. And this is where the people of Malachi found themselves, Right? These people, they were in this period of waiting, but they didn't wait well. They believed this lie that while they were waiting, they could just check the boxes of faith without actually being faithful. Right? They believed that their religious practices could make them righteous. And they became a people who did religious things, but they stopped following God. And I think for all of us, this is an easy trap for us to be in while we're, while we're in this perpetual season of waiting. We can, get on, we can get kind of caught up thinking that, you know, going to church and, and reading our Bible and, and serving all these things make us good people. And so we do these things, these religious practices, and then we stop living as a follower of Jesus. This is a deceptive place to be. Right? Because in this place, we're lulled into this false sense of security, thinking that all of our religiousness can actually make us righteous, and then we neglect doing the things that actually bring about righteousness. And so we, we, when we're in this place, what we need is Advent. Right? We need a breakthrough of Jesus in our life to help bring us out of this place and, and bring us back into a place of discipleship, and into a place of righteousness. And so today, we're gonna confront that lie that we see cropping up in Malachi, this lie that, that religion can make me righteous, and we're gonna discover three truths about righteousness. Right, And like I said, we're gonna do this by looking comprehensively at the whole book. Um, Malachi was the last book of the Bible written to the Christian church in the Old Testament. It's like the last Old Testament book of the Bible, written about 430 uh, BCE, Um. We can assume it was written by a guy named Malachi. Malachi also means messenger. It doesn't really matter. The message of the book is still the same. Um, but this was God's final word to a people in waiting before Jesus had arrived. And so the first truth that we're going to see in our text today is one that we've already started to address, right? It's this, this truth that religion does not equal righteousness. Our religious practices will never make up for sinful living. Our religion will never make us righteous. And the Hebrew people that, that God is addressing in this book of Malachi, they had come to believe that if they did religious things, that they would be right before God. And like we said, this is a subtle lie, right? This is like, this is like the railroad track that's kind of off a centimeter over here, but when you get way down there, it's like 10 miles apart, right? And it completely derails the train, The people of Malachi were a people in waiting. They were people who had been released from Babylonian captivity, right? So they were under this Babylonian captivity. Um, The people of Malachi were the people who were uh, experiencing the second temple. Um, The temple had been rebuilt. And so you see like 500 years before the people of Malachi, we had Solomon. He was this incredible king. um, And Solomon built this temple. And God's presence like literally dwelled in the temple in this special way. But as Israel went on and the timeline of Israel progressed, they started like, uh, forsaking God in their life. They, they turned from God, and God's presence left the temple, and the temple was destroyed in 586 CE, right, or BCE. And so uh, these people in Malachi, they were the people who uh, had been released from Babylonian captivity. They were the people of this new temple, and they were pumped right? They were excited. They were finally back in their land. The temple is reconstructed. And when they're inaugurating the temple in 515 BCE, they're offering up hundreds and, you know, hundreds of these animal sacrifices. They're observing the Passover all again. And they're doing all of this in anticipation of God's presence coming back in that same special way. But what happened? Nothing Nothing happened. There was no pillar of fire. There was no glory in the temple. God's presence did not return in that same special way that he was there in Solomon. And so they found themselves waiting. When is God going to return to the temple? Hoping one day that God would come back in his glory. The people in Malachi found themselves in this extended season of Advent and they didn't handle it well. Right? They got sort of bored with their faith, they kind of felt a little restricted. By it, and and they were in this land that was their land, but all around them were Persians, right, and so they started living, like, the culture around them while they were actually, while they were doing, like, the religious things that Jews did, and slowly, they started, these people started drifting into thinking that if they go through the motions of following God, that they can actually kind of check the boxes for these religious practices, and that God will declare them righteous, and that's just not the truth, right, they got caught up in a dead orthodoxy. They were doing religious things without pressing into their relationship with God, and, and, and that is never going to be a life giving place for us to be in. This is always going to result in this boring, thrillless religious practices that are going to lead to apathy, and then apathy is going to turn into uh, sin, and we're going to become these people who are living like these duplicitous lives. That's what happened with these folks in Malachi. You know, in one sense, they would follow the rules and they would worship. And at the very same time, they would dishonor God through their disobedience, and they didn't follow God well. Um, We see in in Malachi 1, 6 through 14, we see some of the duplicity of the priests, right? They they were bringing sacrifices to God, but these sacrifices were were blemished. They were polluted. When God established the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, he said, y'all need to bring me your best, right and this was a reminder that like one our sin costs our best and two it's a reminder that we give god our best we can't just bring god the leftovers right we give him our best and these priests said oh man we don't need to bring god the best we can just kind of check the boxes right he'll be cool with it and soon this drift became so drastic that they were doing the opposite of bringing their best Instead of bringing their best, they were bringing their worst. They were bringing these kind of mangy, diseased animals that they couldn't do anything else with. And they're like, oh man, I don't know what to do with this. I don't want to feed it anymore. I guess I'll just sacrifice it, give it to God. In chapters one and two, we see these priests, they were going through the motions of what the law required. They were doing religious things, thinking that God was cool with it. And at the very same time, they were violating the covenant with God by living lives steeped in sin we see the same duplicity in the Hebrew people, right? Chapter 2.13 says that the people, this is what the text says, it says that they were covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because God no longer accepts their offering or regards it with favor. So these guys are coming to the temple on Saturday, they're worshiping, you know, the Sabbath, that's when the Jewish people would worship, and they were begging God to be in their life, which seems like a pretty religious thing to do, right? It seems like a good thing to do. But as we keep reading, we see that these people were living in this unrepentant sin. They they were not honoring their marriage vows. The people were getting married to idolatrous people. They were picking up the practices of idolatry in their own lives. They weren't raising God, honoring children. And then they would get divorced for no reason. And so in one sense, they're crying out. They're saying, God, why aren't you regarding my offerings? Why aren't you in my life? Why aren't you in in my life in this special way? And in the very same breath, they're dishonoring God their lifestyle. God says, man, I'll tell you why. It's because you're so flippantly disregarding this covenant of marriage that you made before me, right? We see this duplicity. These folks are the folks coming to church, begging God to be in their life, and as soon as they leave, they disregard life with their entire lifestyle. In 2.17, we see that the Israelites uh, were saying that evil is good, and they were saying that God was delighting in evil. In three six through 12, we see that they had become a selfish people who stopped living generously And so the overarching uh, issue of these Israelite people in Malachi is that they were dishonoring the name of God while going through the motions of worshiping God. They were duplicitous. They were living segmented lives. They came to the temple, they did religious things on the Sabbath, and they went out living the rest of their lives for themselves. And the worship of Israel that was once the source of renewal, this source of life for them, had degenerated into a dead religion and church, this can so easily happen to us, right? Especially when we're in this extended season of waiting, going, Jesus, when are you going to come back, right? We can do Christian things without actually pursuing Christ. Our worship can become a cultural thing, or it can become this habit that we keep and that we maintain, but we're actually living like the culture around us. We can do the things of worship, without beholding Jesus. And when this uh, happens, our worship and our discipleship feels like a have to instead of a get to, right? It feels like an obligation, and then that obligation turns into apathy, and then apathy turns into sinful living. And then we become these people who honor God with our lips, and we deny him with our lifestyle. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to give our best to God. That is the call, not our leftovers, Right? In scripture, we see that Jesus was our sacrifice. He paid the penalty for our sins. His blood was spilt. That was spilt was greater than the blood of bulls and goats, right? Because Jesus' blood can actually purify us from sin. It can remove our guilt before God. And so we no longer have to go to temples. We no longer have to offer sacrifices anymore. But in Romans, we see that there is a sacrifice that we do offer, not a sacrifice of atonement or salvation, but a sacrifice of devotion. Uh, Paul says this in Romans 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our life is the sacrifice that we offer. And we offer this sacrifice by living as followers of Jesus in obedience to him, by joining him in relationship, and by partnering with him in the mortification of our sins, right? In obedience to his word. If your life is an offering to God, the question is are you giving him the best offering? Or are you giving him the leftovers? Right? Are we saying, here, God, I'll give you this little part of me over here. I'm going to check that box of religion, but I'm going to give the whole rest of my life to this thing over here. And the reality is that we will know the answer to this question by examining our lives. Right? What is the fruit of our life? If I take a step back and look at my life, am I experiencing the, the, the fruit of the Spirit? Am I experiencing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self, uh, faithfulness, and self-control? Right? Am I experiencing these things? Am I I seeing other people encounter Jesus through my life? Right, that's how we will know. Scripture says, by our fruit, we are known. And so are we a people who are calling evil good? Are we honoring marriage by loving and serving our spouse, by remaining faithful, by practicing self-denial? Or are we defiling our marriage by putting our own needs first? Right? Are you forsaking your marriage covenant by lusting after images on the screen or imagining how your spouse ought to be in some sort of a fantasy? Are we a people who are living generously, knowing that the God who freely gave us the gift of salvation has empowered us to freely give all of us to him and to his purposes? Are we living that way? When our worship stops short of our ethic and of our character, our worship becomes a dead orthodoxy, and my concern is that we can be a people who come here on Sunday morning doing religious things like singing and sitting under the teaching of God's word, and since we're doing these things, we think that we're righteous before God. We can say the right things when we're in a spiritual conversation. We can answer all the Bible trivia questions, and we can sound super spiritual, but the truth is that we're actually far from God, and when we pull back the curtains of our lives, what we see is duplicity. We see a life where we're reading the Bible, where we're praying, where we're coming to church and we're checking all these boxes, but our lives look like the same as everybody else around us, right? We're not giving ourselves to obedience. We're not, we're not giving ourselves to the self-denial that, that living a godly life requires when our self wants to do things that are contrary to God's will. But since we're doing all these other religious things, we think, oh yeah, I'm good, Right? We're showing signs of life, but really our faith is dead. And in these periods of deadness, what we need is a personal advent, right? When our lives do not reflect true worship, our worship rituals become dead orthodoxies. Singing songs, sitting under teaching, receiving communion, it all becomes a dead orthodoxy, and none of it makes us righteous before God. And the truth is, we all know this. Like, we know this experientially right? Like I know, uh, uh, I don't know if you've like read Christianity Today recently, but like you, you can't read an issue of Christianity Today or look at kind of Christian news without seeing some sort of story about a pastor or a ministry leader who has some sort of like, you know, spiritual abuse or sexual abuse or embezzlement, some sort of like grievous sin, right? And we read these articles and we're like, man, like it's sad, We feel the grief of that in that moment. There are this whole spectrum, you know, these people that we look to as like heroes and we see that this fall and and we feel this whole gamut of emotions. We feel sad, we feel confused, we're grieving. But the one thing that we don't ever do, we never do this in this situation. We never go, well, you know what? That guy did a lot of religious things. So he was pretty righteous. We never do that. We never say, oh, let's, you know, he might've abused somebody, but he preached the Bible a lot and that's pretty religious. So he's actually a good guy. We never do that. And that's because the things that we do, these righteous things, don't make up for our sinfulness. And if that's true in the big things and the things that we read about in the news for other people, it's true in our own lives with the little things, right? Our religious practices don't make up for our our, our little sins, our, our white lies, our gluttony, our greed, our pride, right? Religiousness, religion, Will never equal righteousness. Righteousness comes from repentance. And this is the second truth that we see in Malachi, it's that righteousness comes from repentance. And we see a lot of this emerging out of Malachi 3 1 through 4. I'm gonna read that for us. It says, Behold, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the lord they will offer they, then the offerings of judah and jerusalem will be pleasing to the lord as in the days of old as in the former years what he's saying is that after this repentance this refinement happens we're able to offer sacrifices of righteousness that are pleasing to the Lord. And what this is, this is a prophecy about somebody who's really closely associated with Advent, right? This is talking about Jesus's cousin, John, the baptizer. And and many of us remember the story of John, right? Uh, This incredible birth, Luke 1 and 2 kind of detail this message. John's uh, father, Zechariah, was serving as kind of like this lead priest in the temple, and he's visited by the angel of the Lord who tells him that he and his wife, Elizabeth, will have a baby, right? Both of these people are past child-rearing years, and so this is a miraculous baby, and then this angel says that this baby will have the power of Elijah, that he will turn the hearts of Israel towards God. This baby will prepare the way for the Lord. And then as the story unfolds, we see that the angel Gabriel appears to, Mariel, er, to Mary, and he tells her that she too will have a baby. And Mary's shocked, right? She's engaged. She's not married. She's never been with a man, and yet she is going to have a baby. And the angel tells her that this baby will be named Jesus. And that he will be great, and he will be called son of the most high God. And and that he, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and that he will rule forever, and that this kingdom will have no end. And Mary's like, What? Like her mind's blown, like she can't believe this, right? And so the angel says, Man, I'll tell you what, go talk to Elizabeth, your relative, and she'll confirm this message. And so Mary travels like three months. Uh, three months journey from Nazareth to this place in the Hebron Valley and where Zachariah and Elizabeth lives. And as soon as she gets there, the baby inside of uh, Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy, right? This pre-born child worshiped God while he was still in the womb of his mother. And in that moment, Mary knew what God had told her was true, right? It's impossible for her to have a baby. It's impossible for Elizabeth to have a baby. And yet she's pregnant. And not only is she pregnant, this baby's like Jamming and Hill song in the womb, like this baby's worshiping and praising God. And this is the story that we remember around Christmas time, right? But oftentimes we actually forget about John's message. We forget about what he said. Malachi says that, that this person, John, will be like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap, right? These are two images that that, that are supposed to conjure in our mind, this idea of making pure. In the gospel of John, John the Beloved, the one who wrote the gospel, tells us that, that Jesus, in Jesus, true life is found. He says that Jesus is the light of the world in whom there is no darkness. And it says that only Jesus is the true light who gives light to all men. And then John the Beloved goes on to talk about John the Baptizer, and he says that John was not the light, but he came as a witness to the light so that all might believe in Jesus and be saved. In John 1:29, as Jesus is approaching John to be baptized, John shouts out, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was John's mission. His whole aim in life was to point people to Jesus. And he did this by telling them to repent and to be baptized. That is what John said. And we talked about this last week, right? That repentance means turning from sin and to Jesus in faith. And actually, the first Advent candle is the candle of faith. We remember during Advent that it's by faith that we are saved. And it's important to understand that repentance and righteousness are both a one-time event and a lifelong journey, right? Our first act of repentance, our first act of turning towards Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, it's a one-time event. And when this one-time event happens, it has a one-time effect. We we turn to Jesus, we believe in him, we trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, and then we are declared righteous. We go categorically from sinful person to righteous person. That is what we become. Our sins are forgiven. Jesus takes our sinfulness, he nails it to the cross. Colossians says, he kills it, he gives us his perfect righteousness in exchange, and there's nothing that we can do to earn that. Right? There's no religious practice that we can do to earn that. It is a free gift that is given to us by God in his grace. And so both initial repentance and initial righteousness are a one-time event. We repent, we're declared righteous by God, and yet at the very same time, they're lifelong journeys. As followers of Jesus, we are called to live a lifestyle of repentance. As we grow deeper in our relationship with God, we become more aware of how perfect he is and how not so perfect we are Right? And God works in us to reveal these areas of our life that are sinful. And then these areas of life uh, that are sinful, we, we realize they're actually preventing us from experiencing life as it was intended to live. And so we turn away from them. We repent and we turn to Jesus. And as Christians live out this lifestyle of turning away from sin, turning towards Christ, we grow in righteousness. This was the issue in Malachi, The people in Malachi, they were doing religious things, but they were not turning from sin. They thought that their religion would make up for their sin and make them righteous, but religion doesn't make us righteous. That can only come from a relationship with Jesus and from turning away from sin. And now there's always ups and downs in this, right? Like nobody's perfect. If we're charting out our life on a timeline, it should look like the S&P, right? Should always have some ups and downs, but it should always be going in an upward trajectory, that is the trajectory of the Christian life. We see that re- repentance and righteousness are one-time events and they're lifelong journeys. And it's, it's sort of like marriage, right? Like I remember 10 years ago, you know, Monica and I, uh, you know, we asked her to marry me. She said, yes, we're standing at this church and I'm over here like this and, you know, watching her come down, trying not to lose it, you know, and, and we say our vows and, and the pastor goes, man, I now declare you husband and wife. You're married. You were categorically single, and now you are categorically one flesh. That is who you are. But we realized pretty quickly in being, into being married that we weren't really, like, good at being one flesh, right? Like, we were pretty different. I'm an extrovert. She's an introvert. I like it cold. She likes it hot. I think Christmas starts December 25th. She thinks it starts in September. You know, it's like this is, it's the, we're different. But as we love one another, as we serve one another, as we give ourselves to the process of marriage, we become more unified, we become more one flesh, we become more married. Marriage is a one-time event and a lifelong journey. it's not an easy journey, but it's a good journey. It's a rewarding journey and a fulfilling journey. And the second you stop giving yourself to that journey, you start enjoying marriage less. And our relationship with Jesus is the same. We enter into this relationship through repentance. We are made righteous, and we join him on this journey of repentance, and we grow in righteousness. And it's not always easy, but it is always good. And so if we want to be righteous, we must live a lifestyle of repentance, forsaking sin, and living out our faith. This was the message that John the Baptizer taught, and it's a vitally important message right? It's vitally important for us to grasp this because the ramifications for rejecting this message are tragic. They're tragic. Listen to what John says in Matthew 3, 11 and 12. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and he uh, clear, his, clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Right? That's a hard message. God raised up John the Baptizer intentionally as a precursor to Jesus to make his people aware of their sin so they could repent. And in that repentance, there is righteousness and this is vital because there is a judgment coming. There will be a day when every single person in this room will stand before the living God and be judged. That is an actual day. That is an actual future event in his, or in the future that will happen, right? We see this in Malachi 3.5. Malachi prophesies it, you know, 2,500 years ago. He says, then I will draw near to you for judgment, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the, adult, uh, the, uh, the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is why we need Advent, right? And in this season, we beg Jesus to break in. And when Jesus breaks in, we see ourselves for what we really are. And in that moment of honest self recognition and repentance, God will break in on us and he will make us righteous before Jesus. Because when we stand before God on judgment day, he does not separate good and bad, right? He's separating righteous and unrighteous. And there are plenty of folks that seem like good folks, but they haven't trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. They're not, they're not, repenting. They're not, they're not living in such a way that would show their followers of Jesus. And those people are going to be rejected. And there are plenty of people that we would say are a bad person. They've done some terrible things, but they have called out to God. They've repented. They've asked for forgiveness. And God, in his loving mercy, says, I forgive you. Enter into my rest. There is a coming judgment. That is what we think about in Advent. We look forward to the day when Jesus is coming because right, the, those who are righteous will await judgment with joy. This is the assurance that we have in scripture that if we have been declared righteous by God, we can await judgment with joy. We don't have to be fearful and we don't have to be terrified. Towards the end of Malachi chapter three, verses three through 15, um, people start to question God, right? They're basically saying, man, there's no point to following God, it's all vain to serve God. There's, there's no profit in keeping his charge or walking in mourning before the Lord, the text says. They say that the, that the evildoer prospers, that they put God to the test and that they escape. And then there's this other group of folks right after. They speak up in, in, in this kind of message of Malachi, and, and they're the ones who fear God who have repented, who have been declared righteous. And as the Lord looks upon them, he places them in what the Malachi says is his book of remembrance. So this could maybe be an actual literal book in heaven where God keeps things. It could be a metaphor for God remembering. Either way, it's fine. The message is still the same, right? God looks down upon those who fear him, who have repented and who walk in repentance. And to all those who remain faithful to him, he promises to remain faithful to them. I love what Malachi says about these people in verses 17 and 18. He says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possessions and I will spare them as a man who spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. All these other people, they're saying, God, look around. There's no point to serving you, right? The wicked are just doing whatever they want and they're getting away with it. There's no point to obeying your commands. There's no point to walking in repentance. There's no point in being righteous. And God's saying, yes, there is. There is a point, right? There is a point. You must, you, you, you faithful remnant, you are my treasured possession. You who have turned to me in repentance, you will be separated from the wicked on the day of judgment. And church, If you are in Christ, you are his treasured possession. And we have the assurance that God doesn't lose his treasured possession. He holds it tightly like a kid with their favorite toy, right? God doesn't lose his treasured possession. Early on, we said that there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. And the beautiful assurance that we have in the gospel is that there is nothing that we can do to lose our salvation, Malachi 1 talks about the election of his people. He said, I have called you. I have made you my people. Malachi 3 6, uh, you know, he's saying, I'm not judging you because he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He said, I've called you. I've made you mine. And I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. What we are seeing here is that, that God has chosen his people. He doesn't change. And that those who have trusted in him and repented of their sins, They will not be consumed by judgment. And God in his grace gives us all the opportunity to repent, the opportunity to turn to him. In the New Testament, I love love how Paul puts it, right? He has this brilliant gospel exposition from Romans 1 all the way to Romans 8, explaining how people are saved, right? Explaining that we're all sinners, that we're all in need of grace, and it's by faith alone that we're saved. Romans 1 through 8, right? And then at the end of chapter 8, he says this. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's beautiful. And that is our assurance. For those who have trusted in Jesus and are in Christ, there is nothing that you can do to separate yourself from his love. Life or death will not separate you. Angels and demons will not separate you. Past sins, present sins, future sins will not separate you. This is because you are God's treasured possession and God does not lose his treasured possessions. And this is the assurance that we have in Jesus and the assurance that we can await judgment with joy. I love how Malachi 4 describes it, right? He describes this day of judgment. He says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, this is the assurance that we have. We have the promise that one day there will be another advent right, another coming of our king. And when he comes, he's literally bringing heaven with him to earth, right? This whole concept of us being these disembodied spirits, that's not the Bible. That's Plato, right? Scripture tells us that Jesus is bringing heaven to earth, and he is making a new heavens and a new earth, a perfect one with no suffering and no pain and no anxiety, no loneliness and no fear and no death. And we will live in glorified physical corporeal bodies on this new glorified earth in the presence of Jesus whose glory is so radiant that we don't need the sun because his glory lights the day. This is our promise. And this is the joy that we have to look forward to that when that day comes, we will be like the calves leaping from the stalls, right? We'll be so overwhelmed with excitement and joy that we'll be jumping in celebration. In Christ if you've been declared righteous, you can await this day with joy. I remember uh, uh, I was leading this thing called Alpha in Texas. We've done it here before. Alpha is an incredible place. It's an, an environment where uh, people who have spiritual questions can come and ask those questions in a safe environment. There's no judgment. There's no like, guilt or shame. We, we set up tables and we have a meal together. We watch these videos that kind of ask the big questions in life. Right, and then discuss them from a Christian worldview, with the understanding that not everyone around the table has the same view, and so we talk about it. And I remember there was one time that I was like leading this group, and there was a guy there um, who who claimed that he was like formerly a Christian. He's not a Christian anymore, and he said, "Man, I just I can't believe in God because like evil, because like all of the the sin and the wickedness in this world. Like if if God is real, and if God really did send His Son Jesus to Earth two thousand years ago." Why is there still evil? I was like, man, that's a great question. That's a great question. And and the answer is that because God is gracious, because God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, because if Jesus would have brought his righteousness, if he would have come and vanquished all evil, none of us would be here right now. The new heavens and the new earth would be established and it would just be God and there would not be a single person here because there is no one who is righteous on their own merit. We all need Jesus to be righteous. And so God, in his loving kindness, he came twice. God, the son, condescended. He came once and he's coming again. I'm sorry, he has two Advents. In the first one, he came as the suffering servant who would take upon our sins and who would reign victoriously over them at the cross. And in the second Advent, when Jesus comes back, he's coming as the warrior king. He is coming to bring his kingdom to earth and to vanquish all evil. And if you have not been declared righteous, you are going to be a part of that vanquishing. And that is a scary place to be. Malachi talks about this day in Malachi 4.1. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root or branch, all wicked, totally obliterated, down to the root there will be a future judgment. And if you have not trusted in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, repenting them and being declared righteous by God, that is the fate that awaits you. And I'll say that lightly. I say that with the tone of saying, no, be a person who asks God to forgive your sins. It's a free gift that he wants to give you, right? There's a day of judgment coming and there's a terror. But if you have repented, if you have turned from sin and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that day will be a day of joy. It will be a day of excitement. It will be a day of celebration. For those of us who are in Christ, this world is the closest thing that you will ever experience to hell, right? The pain and the suffering of this world, this is as bad as it gets for you. And in the midst of it, you still have the joy of the Lord. But if you're not in Christ, this world right here, This is the closest thing to heaven that you will ever experience, right? This is it. It does not get any better. And so the response is twofold. If you have rejected Christ, stop. Stop running. Turn to him. Run to him, right? He's like the father waiting to embrace the prodigal, saying, come, come and be in my family. Or if you're a person who's been trusting in religion, Right? If you think that your good works will somehow earn you righteousness, stop. There's no single good thing that you can do that will cancel out a bad thing. It doesn't work that way. Right? Turn to Christ in repentance. Ask him for the salvation of your sins. And then do the work of repentance. Do the work of righteousness because you get to, not because you have to. Because in that you experience higher degrees of relational intimacy with the living God. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, right, who, who have turned from our sins, who as you await judgment with joy, we have a model for how you are to act in the person of John the Baptist, right? You have a mission. Like John makes Jesus famous in our world, you too are commissioned to make Jesus famous in our world. John famously said, I must become less so that he must become, or I must become, uh, he must become greater and I must become less, right? This is our mission. We, we, we practice self-denial. We live under the lordship of Jesus and we make Jesus famous. I love what uh, uh, Robert Weber wrote. He wrote this book called Ancient Future Time and he writes about John the Baptist and he says, John the Baptist is an example of the kind of person God can break in upon and use, he was a person whose sole mission in life was to serve God. He wanted nothing from himself. He shunned fame, wealth, and family to do God's bidding, and he had no thought for self and gave all he had to point to Christ and not to himself. This is our mission, right? We want to channel every part of our life towards the mission of making Christ known because all of these other things, they fade away. They're meaningless. On that day of judgment, nobody cares about your house. Nobody cares about, you know, how, how, how much you had in your 401k. The only thing that matters is what we do in devotion to the Lord. And so we want to live our life to point to Jesus. In Malachi, we learned that religion does not equal righteousness that righteousness comes from repentance and the righteous await judgment with joy. So let this Advent season be one of joy, remembering what Jesus has done for us in the past during his first Advent and what He is going to do in the second Advent. And let us wait with anticipation, with excitement, right? So I'm going to pray towards that end John is gonna come and lead us in another song of worship before we go. And then we are going to be sent out as ambassadors of Christ who make Jesus famous. Please bow your heads with me, church. Father, we, we love you. We are thankful for you. We are thankful for this church, for this people of God who have gathered together to worship your name. We don't take it for granted. We know it's a gift from you. Every good and perfect gift comes from you, God, and we know that and we're thankful for them. And God, we ask that by your grace that you would help us to become a people who represent you well. Help us to be a people of repentance who turn from sinful living, who are not checking boxes of religion while living lives that dishonor you, God. Help us to to worship you in spirit and in truth, God. Let us be a people who love you fully, who experience you in fresh ways. God, I pray for for our church now that, that you would pour out your grace in fresh ways over this next week, God, and that as they spend time with you, that it would be refreshing and exciting and joyful. We ask that you would continue to make us a joyful people who anticipate your second coming, God, with reverence and repentance. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.